Hello, I'm Susan Spence. Welcome to the latest edition of the Borders podcast. This is the place to listen to interviews and news from the world of books, music and DVD, as well as hear about exclusive offers and competitions. In this edition, we speak with the international best-selling author Sarah Dunant about her new novel, Sacred Hearts. And if, like me, you've always been a bit curious about nuns, then you're going to love this one. That's all I'm going to say about that for the moment. Sacred Hearts is the third in a trilogy of Italian Renaissance novels. The Birth of Venus and The Company of the Courtesan have both received international recognition and Sacred Hearts is unlikely to be any different. We also chat to TV scriptwriter and comedian Jane Busman about her first book, The Worst Date Ever. Sick of British reality TV, Jane moved to Hollywood to do something better, except it didn't quite work out that way, and thanks to a man named John Prendergast, who she spotted in a copy of Vanity Fair, Jane ended up in the gorilla playgrounds of Uganda, looking for redemption and love. The worst date ever is an account of that time, and yes, it is as bizarre as it sounds. But before we get started, let me tell you about our special half-price Stieg Larsson offer that you can find right now online at borders.co.uk. Prior to his sudden death from a heart attack in 2004, Stieg Larsson finished three detective novels in his trilogy, The Millennium Series. The first was the widely acclaimed The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, in which we were introduced to Lisbeth Salander. And the second, out now for summer, is called The Girl Who Played With Fire. This time, Salander is a wanted woman. Two millennium journalists about to expose the truth about sex trafficking in Sweden are murdered, and Salander's prints are on the weapon. Her history of unpredictable and vengeful behaviour makes her an official danger to society, but no one can find her. Well, if that takes your fancy right now at Borders, you can buy The Girl Who Played With Fire for half price. Just visit borders.co.uk to get your copy for 3 99 And while you're there, if you haven't already got it in your collection, then why not also pick up The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? And for Larson fans keen to know when the third and final part of the trilogy is out, I can tell you it's expected to be released this year in late autumn but has yet to be given a definitive title. Check the Borders website for details on that. And remember, you can buy all the books we feature in this month's podcast also by visiting borders.co.uk. Our first guest is Sarah Dunant. Now, like me, some of you may already know of Sarah through her crime thrillers. But nowadays, she's renowned for her Italian Renaissance novels. Sacred Hearts is about everyday life in a 16th century Italian convent. And in particular, the story of a young girl who's hell-bent on destroying the peace in order to get out. Sarah, welcome to Borders. Thank you very much for popping by. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, everybody would think that anybody who goes into a convent or decides to become a nun, they do it because they want to, they do it of their own free will. But back then, in those times, it was a completely different story. It's a really shocking piece of history, actually. And I didn't know it before I started researching the book, but I was so shaken when I discovered it, which is I'm writing at the end of the 16th century, just at the end of the most powerful bit of the Renaissance in Italy. And by the 
then dowry inflation, the money you had to pay off to marry a daughter well, had risen so much that people could only afford to marry one or possibly two daughters off. But of course, you couldn't let your daughter just stay in the house because as soon as a young woman becomes sexually, potentially active back then, she's a threat. Men may want to get their hands on her. So what you had to do is you had to marry your daughter to Christ, basically. And it's now estimated that something like half of all well-bred or noble women went into convents at this time. And of course, as you quite rightly say, not all of them went into convents because they wanted to worship God. There was just no other place for them to go. And the main character in the book, who's the nor- novice Serafina, she clearly, she's only 16, she clearly doesn't want to be there. She's been had a love affair. She's been, her family have ripped her away from her beloved. She's been thrown in there, kicking and screaming, quite literally, yes. the whole place down. Yes. She's such a strong character, isn't she? She is. And I always had, before I knew what this story was going to be about, I always had this central image in my mind, which is a cloisters at night, which is a beautiful, beautiful, peaceful place, being ripped apart by the screams of a young woman who doesn't want to be there. And of course, although the past in a sense, is extremely different from the present because all the social circumstances are so different. Some of those key emotions are not dissimilar. And anyone who either remembers their own teenage years or who has teenage daughters will know the power of kind of hormonal rage and feeling that can come when you stop them doing something. And there would have been a lot of young women in convents at that time. So I see it as a place of sort of raging hormones caught between old women, middle-aged women and these young women. And Serafina comes comes in so angry and in such pain. And basically, she's like throwing a bloody great rock into a calm pool. And the novel is what she does to try and destroy the convent in order to get out. I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but of course, it's a man-free zone. Yes, indeed. And that in itself must throw up lots of things for the nuns themselves, no matter which background they come from. Indeed. It's an interesting one, this, you know, because when I was writing Sacred Hearts and men would say to me, what are you writing about? And I'd say, I'm writing a novel entirely set in a convent in which there are no men. There'd be a beat of a pause and they'd go... Oh, naughty nuns, eh? <laughs> Sex. And I think, oh, that's interesting. Okay, fine. And when I, when women came up to me and asked the same question, and I said, a nunnery without men, there'd be a pause and they'd say, what an interesting thing to live entirely without men. Now, I wonder what that allowed them to do. And eventually, of course, they'd get to sex, but it wouldn't be their first thought. Mm. And I think that that's very interesting because I think particularly at this period of time, the life outside for women was pretty bloody also, actually. Married at 14 or 15 to somebody you didn't necessarily Mm. love. You then become a kind of breeding cow of having maybe 10, 15, 20 children, many of which would die in in childbirth. You may die in childbirth and with no space in the world to achieve anything. You know, the old hoary question, why are there no female Beethovens? Why is there not a female Michelangelo? Well, actually, I think there's a pretty simple reason, which is no birth control. And so you put women in a convent, and although, yes, there's an issue about sex and sexuality and how they find it through God or whatever, or ecstasy, but there's also some space for them to do other things. And to my astonishment, what I discovered, and I've tried to weave it into the book, is how creative some of these women were. There were women here composing music. There were women here doing copying of manuscripts. One of my central characters runs the dispensary in the Mm, herb garden. Is actually the nearest she could ever come to being a female doctor, but 
she has to be behind the walls to do it. So it was a real mix of the wonder and what was gained and the horror and what was taken away from you. And no doubt there were horror stories in there too. Yeah, one of the things that struck me about it was they used the word, or you used the word cells, which immediately conjures up mm. prison. And I thought, yeah, it kind of, to me, it seemed a bit like a prison. But then the more I read and I thought, really, yeah, they do actually have quite a lot of personal freedom. They're able to explore so many things that, as you say, on the outside, they wouldn't have been able to. So I thought, I began to think, actually, maybe this wouldn't be such a bad life. I tell you what I would struggle with, though, mm -hmm. and that is being woken up every morning at two o'clock to go to a service. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? I did it for six days as research yeah. for the book. I went to a convent near Milan, and that was singularly the most difficult thing, the sleep deprivation. Yeah. So they go to sleep after compline at about eight o'clock, and at two o'clock the bell goes, and you get up and you walk out of your cell, and you go, of course, not as you would now into a, con into a church, which might be a little heated with electric lights. You go into a freezing cold church with candlelight, which flickers kind of rather miserably mm. around you. And you stand there and as you start to sing, the breath comes out of your mouth as smoke. And of course, when I did that, I then started to think, oh, this is a place where people might have ecstasies or visions because the whole of your environment is different. You know, there are certain things about the past that make it utterly different from today. One central one is no painkillers. Yeah. So people were in pain a lot of the time. And the other thing is no electric light. So everything that you saw around you as it got dark had the potential to be flickering and changing. Yeah. Yeah. So when we now think about visions, it's actually much easier to imagine them in a church where you're sleep deprived, the candles moving fast, it looks like one of the statues are moving. It's a great way to get your imagination going, actually. Yes, it is. Because yeah. it's hard to get into the past sometimes because it is a foreign place. And yet it's a foreign place which is so exotic and exciting. I mean, you were saying there that you obviously went to a convent for your research. Um, I have to admit that from a very young age, I have had a fixation with nuns. Uh -huh. um, but when I was younger, <laughs> when, I, when I was younger, this is absolutely true. Um, I, I didn't call them nuns. I called them orphans. I couldn't get my head around that they were. Oh, interesting. Well, that, now that I think more about it, which made me think about it after having read the book, I thought, yeah, it's quite an unusual thing to think about orphans. But in some ways it is, you know, a, a suitable name for them. Yes. But I've always been interested in them. And I, I just wondered if, if you were too, for, and that's the reason why you wrote the book, and also just what it was like to spend those six days in a convent. I was not that interested in them because I was slightly frightened of them. The notion of having no choice. Guilty Pleasures, the first in the Anissa Blake series, is reissued in paperback idea. by headline on May the 14th. And you can pre-order your copy online at borders.co.uk. And in part yes. two of the interview with Laurel K. Hamilton, which you can hear in next month's podcast, Laurel talks about her latest book, Skin Trade. She also gives us a sneak peek into the 18th Anita Blake novel, which for the first time will be set in the UK, as well as hinting at Anita transferring from the page to the screen. You'll remember in last month's podcast, we asked you to vote for your favourite American movie and work of literature of all time. Well, we had a great response and we can now reveal the winners. Actually, which is how almost innocent and childlike 
the nuns felt. So they were often smiling, they were polite, they were quite loving. Maybe they were loving to me, maybe they were mean to each other, I don't know. (laughs) But I think the fact that they don't have to have anything to do with the outside world, Mm. which as you and I both know, I mean, I've arrived for this interview late because of public transport, sweating, exhausted, a bit anxious. Now their life, although it's completely rigorous and disciplined, has none of that kind of abrasion about it. And I think that might give them somewhere, as long as they're not in distress, a quietude and a sense of peace. And also because they're not having to deal with the normal outside world, I think that they can be gentler. And I think that they can be nicer. They have to rub up against a lot less. And I was very struck by how some of them in their 60s or 70s felt almost like children. I mean, it was a rather sweet thing, also a bit weird. I have Mm. to say, and I kept thinking, well, how lovely for you, but what about the life you haven't had? Obviously, you don't mind it, but I keep imagining it for you. But would it be a case of, for some of them, though, you know, you don't miss what you never had? I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. And of course, what we don't know is what they have that we don't. You know, and that brings you to the whole area of what it's like to have a true spiritual relationship with God or the other. Mm -hmm. It is not something that many people nowadays recognize, although interestingly, religion is becoming very important again in the world and in politics. And so I think it makes sense now for us here in Britain to read a lot more about the power of religion as it worked for us in the past, in order that we can understand other countries now where it's working for them. And I do think that one of the things that it does is it gives the individual a feeling of a communication and a conversation with God, with somebody other than themselves, which helps them to work out how they behave and how they feel. And when it gets very intense, comes somewhere near to forms of ecstasy. And it's easy to say, oh, women in convents, they couldn't have sex with men, so they had sex with God, and that's really what it was. The more research I did into visions and ecstasies, the more I thought that was a rather simplistic way of looking at it. Mm. And that whatever went on between those women when they thought they were in the arms of God, it was not as simple as a fake orgasm. And actually, we, of course, will never know. And that's the wonderful mystery about writing about it. And there is a figure in the book who is a visionary, who yeah. who has a relationship with God. And she was one of the most challenging characters. To I write. had to read her bit several times in order to try and get my head round some yeah. of that. Because it was like blinking. When I first read it, I thought, am I actually reading this? And I kind of went back over to try and understand it a bit better. You said there at the very beginning that... Um, the, the book's obviously part of a Renaissance trilogy, but we don't have to have read in any order. We don't have to have read them to make any to make sense, do we? No, absolutely not. They're three completely yeah. self-contained stories. They take place in self-contained cities. One is in Florence during the absolute peak of the Renaissance in the 1490s. The second one takes place in Venice at its most fabulous and decadent in the 1530s when the sex trade was a really thriving industry and Mm. courtesans could get a very good trade there. And this last one takes place later um, on the cusp of the Counter-Reformation, which I would hope, because as I hope is clear, although not in a bad way, I do an incredible amount of research to write these books, is that were one to read the three of them, 
one would read three really good stories that I think will keep you gripped from beginning to end. But at the end of them, uh, almost coincidentally, you would have the knowledge of a hundred years of history in one of the most exciting moments of Western history, yeah. which is the Renaissance in Italy. But of course, you'd never feel like you had to go to a lecture or be taught it. And that's really my aim here, which is there is a lot of interesting history out there now telling us what it was actually like to live in that period, not to be famous, not to be Anne Boleyn or another one of Henry VIII's wives, but to be somebody more ordinary as we would have been. And if I can find a way to create stories which hold the reader and then weave in almost so the stitching is so fine you can't see it, details which are all truthful, yeah. by the end of them, you have a sense of the period. Yeah, I think you can tell at the end with the, the bibliography, there's like a huge amount of oh, yeah. <laughs> It's probably the worst bit of writing the whole book. A year in the British Library. <laughs> Um, one thing I had to say is that, that when your publisher rang up and said to us so, about interviewing you, I was like, yeah, I know that name. I know Sarah Dunant's name. And I went straight to my bookcase and looked around. And there I found a book, Fatlands. <laughs> and I thought, that book's ages gone. And I thought, oh, OK, so she's written, it, it's going to be thriller. It's going to be crime. Yeah. And then, of course, I was sent the book and I thought, oh, have I got the right lady? You did obviously start in that way. And now you've moved over to historical fiction. Yes. Why? Well, uh, history was my first love. Uh, I, uh, I I grew into forming A, Bs and Es on the page by reading historical fiction. I completely adored it. I was obsessed by it. And I studied history at university. Um, but uh, I had the sort of romance of history beaten out of me by an academic training. And by the time I came out of university, I thought history is too complex. It's too complex to write fiction about. I'd never be able to do it justice. But I loved thrillers. I loved the compulsive nature of them. And so I, when I first started writing, I did indeed write thrillers. And thrillers have something in common with this, which is thrillers can be about serious things, mm. but they have to be good popular stories if they're going to work. So you can have your cake and eat it to a certain extent. And that one you're talking about, Fatlands, is one of a trilogy I wrote with a female private eye in it. Hannah Wolf, yeah. Yeah. I think what I learnt from writing thrillers, which has hold, held me in incredibly good stead when it's taken going back into these complex periods of history, is that I've learnt how to tell a story. You know, you cannot be a good thriller writer if somebody wants to put down the book while they're reading it. By definition, you haven't done your yeah. job. A good thriller writer takes you by the scruff of your neck, holds you against the wall and says, I dare you not to want to read the next chapter. And so I learnt my craft as a storyteller from writing thrillers. I learnt pace. I learnt how to fit in the clues that you give about personality and story, how to hold the reader. I'm looking at the sleeve and I, yeah. one question I meant to ask you quite far in the beginning the the lady's face is she somebody we know is oh, it's that amazing cover actually because it's based on an old painting of the annunciation of a madonna by antonio damasino it's a beautiful beautiful painting very blue very delicate and the young woman is looking down as of course during the renaissance women do not stare at the viewer it's mm. very provocative and i brought it into the publishers going this is it this is it i found the cover for the book and they went yeah, but, you know, she doesn't really engage you. And so they said to me, to me let us do a modern photo shoot using the idea of this painting, mm -hmm. but with a modern character. And I said, over my dead body, that's completely inauthentic. How dare you suggest that? I'll never even countenance it. And they went, well, just come in and look at it, right? And I swear, I came in, they unveiled the painting. I had in my mouth, I really hate it. And I looked at the cover and I thought, it's fantastic. It is. It, 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 it actually is very, very eye-catching. Sarah, on a final point, what's next? 
What's the I'm next very, book? very, very tired. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm very tired. I've done nine years research of a hundred years in the Renaissance. I've done everything a woman can do, including being in a convent for about 15 years. I'm going to have a bit of a rest. I hope that's all right. Well, yeah, I think we'll let you off. But uh, I very much enjoyed the book. Thank you very much, Sarah, Thank for coming you. in. Well, Sarah Dinan's Sacred Hearts is currently available to buy online with a 25% discount just by visiting borders.co.uk and you'll find there also her other titles, including the Hannah Wolf thrillers that we spoke about. The summer holidays are now upon us and one of my favourite things about going away is deciding what books to take. Sometimes, though, it's a bit of a struggle to know what to choose. So this summer at Borders, to help make your choice easier, we're giving you up to 40% off summer reading at borders.co.uk. There are lots of categories to choose from, as you would imagine. You might want to take Paula Grady's At My Mother's Knee with you. It's a story of the author's early life in Irish Catholic Birkenhead that started him on the long and winding road from mischievous altar boy to national treasure. You could immerse yourself in Secrets, that's the stunning new summer bestseller from Freya North, or if you're a football fan, then you can't do much better than Sir Bobby Charlton's My England Years. Bobby Charlton is, of course, widely acknowledged as the greatest player ever to wear an England shirt. My England Years is the second volume of his best-selling autobiography. To see the full list and to get up to 40% off summer reading, just go online at borders.co.uk and this summer you can take all your favourite books on holiday and lose yourself in a great read. Jane Busman is a TV scriptwriter of, amongst others, South Park and Smack the Pony. She's now written a book called The Worst Date Ever, which is ultimately a love story. But I warn you, it's like no love story you've ever read before, nor are you likely to again. Brace yourself to hear about Jane Busman's journey from Hollywood to Uganda, her obsession with poo, and how she ended up being a thong.
And if that's whetted your appetite for more true bizarre tales and madness, then now is a great time to buy a copy of The Worst Date Ever because it's currently available for half price at borders.co.uk. And before I go, I've just got time to tell you about how you can get 25% off British travel books. Now, there's never been a better time to holiday right here in Blighty. So take a browse through this section at borders.co.uk and see what catches your eye. To start you off, though, I've picked out a couple for you. The most amazing places to visit in Britain. That's a unique reference guide that will ensure you'll never see Britain in the same way again. Pop into the Umbrella Shop on New Oxford Street in London or explore the Oldbury Power Station on the River Severn. Things you'd never think about doing, but you will be pleasantly surprised. While the Rough Guide to Scotland, I'm not biased, introduces you to some of its highlights, from the wildlife of the Hebrides to the deserted golden beaches in South Harris and the cultural quarters of Glasgow and Edinburgh. You'll love it. Just visit borders.co.uk and click on the 25% of British Travel Books link for a full list of all the books on offer. Well, that brings us to the end of this Borders podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. Remember to check back at the beginning of August at borders.co.uk for the next podcast, which, of course, will be packed full of more interviews and news from the world of books, music and DVD as well as competitions and offers. And remember, you can go back and listen to all the previous pods at borders.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Susan Spence, and on behalf of all the team at Borders, thanks for listening.